Our gospel reading this morning comes from Matthew, chapter 1, and verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning for your son Jesus. Father, we praise you for this season where especially we remember the humility of his incarnation. We thank you that He is with us, even now. Father, we praise you that you would dare to want to be with us. And we thank you that through the work and the sending of his Holy Spirit, that your presence, your your with us-ness is here right at this very moment. Father, I pray that you would remind us again of that this morning by your word, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, way back, way back in the good old days, way back when I was uh, a seminary student, uh, oftentimes in seminary there would be classes that they would offer in kind of the off semester, sort of in between semesters, and there would be like a one-week intensive course. And so this was a great way to kind of knock out a few hours of class, and, but it also meant that you had to sit in lectures all day, every day for five days um, and get sort of what would normally be spread out over a whole semester into one week. And, and so I would, take, I would take these every once in a while to try to get through seminary a little bit quicker. And this one in particular uh, that I took, I was actually pretty excited about. Maybe that says um, something about the nerdiness of me, but this, this was a class on ethics. And the reason that I was excited about it is that the man who was going to be teaching it was, was somebody whose um, books I had read... And I had been just kind of overwhelmed by and impressed with his ability to communicate the truth of Scripture. And he was also really kind of at heart and nature a philosopher. And so his love of the Word and his, his love of kind of the mind kind of melded together and, into this kind of special form of brilliance. And so I remember walking into the class that day and sort of waiting uh, for the class to begin kind of looking through the, the binder full of notes that we were getting ready to work through, and he wasn't there yet. And so we were waiting, and we were waiting for him to arrive, and finally I kind of leaned over 
um, to the guy next to me, and I'm like, I wonder if like his, his plane got delayed or something. And around that time, uh, somebody walked into the room, and they went up to the front, and they kind of were setting down some papers and some shuff, shuff, shuffling some things around, and none of us really paid much attention to this person. And the reason that we didn't is that you kind of, I kind of glanced up and looked, and I honestly thought that it was um, a maintenance worker or a custodian. Um, they were, it was kind of a kind of shorter round person that had really kind of frumpy um, demeanor. Frumpy is such a great word. A frumpy demeanor. I haven't been able to use that one in a while. Um, you know, looked like maybe they had bought their clothes at a thrift store. Um, just wasn't, I, I, I just didn't think much about it. And so I continued to talk to the guy next to me, just waiting for the professor to arrive until finally he said, let us pray. And he began to pray this prayer where I'm like, oh, that's him. And it struck me that day and really through the rest of that week that, that brilliance can come in different packages, right? And it's not necessarily what you would expect. And I think actually the fact that he looked the way that he did, and I had already read and heard the brilliance of his mind, made him that much more impressive. This is not how I expected him to look. Well, in Scripture, what we find is that, that God appears. These, there's these moments of, that we would call theophanies, that God makes his appearance to man. And it comes in a lot of different ways, right? I mean, this past fall, we studied through the book of Exodus, and we found that God made his presence known that he appeared to Moses. And how did he appear? He appeared in a bush that was on fire and yet was not consumed, and he spoke out of that bush. That when God led his people out of slavery, that, that his presence was made known to them, that he appeared to them in a, in a pillar of fire at night. Kind of unmistakable. Where is he? Well, it's the pillar of fire. And during the day, this, this cloud, this pillar of, of smoke that we read through Scripture and we, and we see that, you know, that he appears later, to, he appears to Moses as he gives the law to Moses. And Moses comes back down from Sinai and his face, I mean, this is so strange and beautiful that his face was shining and it did for days. That we see God appear in a whirlwind in a tornado, that we see him appear even in a whisper. But of course, the ultimate appearance and the ultimate theophany, the one that God's people waited for, for literally centuries for, waited and waited and waited for this coming, this appearance of a Messiah. Well, the ultimate appearance of God is that he appears and he shows up in the womb of a poor, unknown, unwed teenager, right? Uh, we, we sang the other night when we gathered together, we opened our, our program with, O come all ye faithful. And one of the lines that I've always, it's hard for me not to kind of almost laugh at the line um, because it's like, I, I don't know when they, when they penned this line that they actually imagined people singing it out loud, but the line is this, and you probably know it, Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. 
right? I mean, that's just like, that's like such a classic hymn line that you're like, but what is it saying? It's saying, the amazed, oh, come all you faithful, can you believe it that he showed up? And where did he show up? Well, look, he doesn't despise the womb of a young, unwed teenager. That's where he appeared. And how, I, I, I don't know the time that maybe you've taken over the last few days to ponder how utterly shocking again this is. How utterly comforting it is that what we, the spectacle that we watch day in and day out as we read the news of this world, as we watch rulers and we watch kings and we watch presidents um, assert their power and assert their credentials and assert all their accomplishments and the things that they've done. But Jesus is so powerful that he actually comes to us and he appears to us in weakness and in smallness and outside, well outside of the centers of the power structures of this world. In fact, he appears on the very margins of society. He doesn't show up and stay in the nicest hotel downtown. He shows up in what we would think of as tent city. Now Mary understood how revolutionary this was, right? Mary understood the fact that the Messiah was going to make his presence known in the world in her womb. She understood that this was revolutionary. Um, Well, I mean, an angel appeared to her, so that, that was her first hint that something's up. But then the fact that she's like, wait, me? I mean, this is kind of the ultimate movie scene where you're like, are you talking, are you talking to me? The angel's talking to me. You're going to appear to me. And we hear this in her words in this, this song, this prayer, this poem that she blurts out when she receives this information that, that we often call the, the Magnificat. What does she say? She says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. The fact that he showed up to me, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. The ones who think that they're so important. And he has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and he has sent the rich away empty. And the Apostle Paul understood this as well. And later when he's writing to the churches in Philippi as, you know, as the congregants of those churches, sort of like we often do, is that we go along in the, the Christian life, we go along following Jesus, and we forget the nature in which he came and the nature in which he found us. And so they had begun bickering with one another. They had become, just like Jesus' disciples, to argue with one another who's more important, who's greater, who's more accomplished in the church and in the world. And Paul calls them back and he reminds them again and he says these famous words, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How did Jesus come? 
How does God show up in the world, His own creation? Well, He comes in humility. He comes in humility. Why does He come? That's my second question. Why does, why does Jesus show up? Why does He come? And it's startling, really, that, um, that we've grown accustomed to the fact that the infinite, unchangeable God, who is pure light and lacks nothing, who is in need of nothing, entered into creation. He came into the world. Why? There's a lot of ways we could answer that question. There's a lot of very theologically complex ways that we could answer that question. But I want to answer that question simply this way this morning. And I want us to ponder at it again. I want us to wonder at it again. Why did Jesus show up in humility? Why was he born of a woman? And the answer to that question that Scripture gives over and over and over again is simply this. He wants to be with you. And that's what's said in this passage, that this is fulfilling what the prophet said, that there's going to be one who is conceived by a virgin, and his name is going to be Emmanuel. And then in parentheses, Matthew tells us what that means. It means God, Yahweh, with us. Now, there's a lot of more complex ways that we can answer that question, but this is why he comes. We can, we can make it more complex, and there is more complexity to it, but if our complexity, here's the thing, if our complexity minimizes this point, if it lessens this point, then we're missing the true joy of this miracle, that we've forgotten what it means to wonder. Because in the end, this is the point. The same holy God who spoke the world into creation simply wants to be with you. He wants you to sit at his table. He delights in you. In order for that to happen, of course, he couldn't just send a message, right? Messages had already been sent, laws had been given, but he had to come himself. He had to be born of a woman. He had to be born under the law. He had to taste the bitterness and the rejection and the scorn of this world. Why? Because he wanted to be with us. He had to come and love and heal in order to be with us. He was born that man no more may die. But to give us that, so that we might, in order for us to be with him, we had to be able to be with him for eternity. And in order for us to do that, of course, that means he had to die. It means he had to abolish death. It means he had to crush death. So even at the birth of Jesus, and even as we, as we celebrate that, and we wonder at that, and we marvel at that, that he showed up, and that he was born into this world, that he took on flesh, that he dwelt among us, even in that, we, we know that, that there in the manger is also the cross. I love the way that the poet John Donne um, said it. He, he, was also, he also wrote some pretty good sermons. And this is from one of his sermons. He said, the whole of Christ's life was a continual passion. And we often talk about the last week of Christ's life as his passion, but he's saying all of his life was a continual passion. Others die martyrs, but Christ was born a martyr. 
He found a Golgotha even in Bethlehem. For to his tenderness then the straws were almost as sharp as the thorns after, and the manger as uneasy at first as the cross at last. His birth and his death were but one continual act. And his Christmas day and his Good Friday are but the evening and the morning of one and the same day. From the creche to the cross is an inseparable line. Christmas only points forward to Good Friday and Easter. It can have no meaning apart from that, where the Son of God displayed his glory by his death. You see, God sent his Son into the world Not, he says, to condemn the world, but to save the world, to renew the world, and to save it, to save us from death, he gave us his son. Because he so, what? We forget this. He so loves the world. He loves this world. And his coming in this way also teaches us that the the, the way things change in this world then are very different than the way that we think that they should change. They're very different than the power structures of this world seem to indicate the way things change. And we fall into this trap over and over again. Well, okay, yes, we believe in Jesus, this, this deity who took on flesh and was born of a, of a woman and then died at the, at the hands of the state and rose again from the dead. We believe in all that, but how are things really going to change in our world? Well, we have ideas of what that might look like. But maybe to answer that question, we have to ask, who did he come for? So how did he come? He came in humility. Why did he come? He came because he wants to be with us. Who did he come for? He comes simply for those who have empty hands. That's it. He comes for the beggars, for the lepers, for the blind, for the women caught in the snares of abusive men for those with empty hands who have nothing to offer but their helplessness and their sin. Jesus himself told us this. He said, it's, and this is something that we wrestle with, he said it's, it's hard for the rich to enter this kingdom. Because Why did he say that? Because if there's one thing our hands have a hard time letting go of, it's whatever we think will secure our lives. It's whatever we think actually makes a a difference in this world. And he says, it's really hard to accept me. It's really hard to accept the one who humbled himself and entered into creation when what you really think is going to change the world, make things better, revolutionize your life is a little bit of this, right? I like the way that Oscar Romero put it. He was a priest who died as a martyr, was actually killed as he was serving um, communion. It's quite a way to go. And he said it this way. He said, no one can celebrate a genuine Christmas without being truly poor. The self-sufficient, the proud, those who because they have everything look down on others, those who have no need even of God, for them there will be no Christmas. Only the poor, the hungry, Those who need someone to come on their behalf will have that someone. That someone is God, Emmanuel, God with us. Without without poverty of spirit, there can be no abundance of God. Without poverty of spirit, there can be no abundance of God. This is exactly what Jesus said when he opened his mouth to preach his most famous sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For Why? For theirs is the kingdom of God. 
Is there anyone in the kingdom of God without poverty of spirit, without knowing that I cannot do it on my own, that I cannot save myself, that I have come to the end of myself? And the resounding answer is no. This is why the man who went into that room and prayed his simple prayer, he beat his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, that Jesus said, that's the one who went home justified today. I don't know what, what gifts um, you received a couple of days ago. Um, you know, the funny thing is, you may not even remember right now what you got a couple of days ago, right? Um, what I do know is that next year, you probably won't remember what you got. If I pressed you to tell me what you received last year for Christmas, there's going to be a few kids in here who could remember, but for most of us adults, we're not going to remember Um, what we got last year, but occasionally we're given something that we really, really remember and that we really cherish, something that that kind of lasts for years, and it gives us joy when we see it. And I think usually those, those gifts that we receive, they typically aren't necessarily about the thing themselves, right? Like a piece of art or an instrument or um, a sweater, you know, that we never would have necessarily picked out for ourselves. The best gifts that we receive point us to this one fact. Somebody thought of me, right? Somebody was thinking of me. Somebody thinks, and maybe especially depending on who the person is, somebody thinks I'm worthy of a gift, Somebody thinks, somebody was thinking about me and they gave me this. The thing itself is usually, eh, whatever. The thought that somebody thinks that I'm worthy to receive this is something that lasts and sticks with us. Someone who despite knowing me, who despite knowing me actually loves me and wants me to know that I'm loved. Somebody who wants to be with me. And what we need to know more than anything else during this season of Christmas is that God sent his son in such humility because he thinks you're worthy of his love. He doesn't think we're good. He doesn't think we can earn it. But he's showing us that he thinks we're worthy of it. We're worthy of his coming. Maybe sometimes you feel as if no one else would ever want to be with you if they really knew you. And here's the wonder of Christmas. He knows everything about you. And in Jesus and in his birth and in his incarnation, what he's proclaiming to you is I know everything about you and I desperately want to be with you forever. And one of the ways that he is with us right now, and this is hard for us to comprehend, One of the ways that he's with us right now is through the people in this room. The person maybe who's sitting next to you, the person who can't be here this morning but is watching from home, even the person who is listening later this week who belongs to this family. Because you see, this is what happens when Jesus draws us to himself and redeems us and makes us his own. We all become one body. We are the body of Christ. And you might not have much family. Maybe that you're painfully aware of that during this season. Maybe more than any other time of year, you're painfully aware of the fact that some of your, um, your blood relatives, some of your family that you were born into is no longer with you. 
You might not have a ton of family that you're close to. You might have burned a lot of bridges, right? And this season especially, you're, you're thinking about the fact that you have done things and you have said things that you can't make right and you can't make up for. But I want to remind you today that God is with us in this fact that this family that you're a part of is not based upon any of that. It's not based upon what you've done or what you've left undone. The tie that you have to this family is based simply on the fact that Jesus wants you, that Jesus has made you worthy, that Jesus has shown you grace, that Jesus has found you in your weakness by becoming weak himself. And here's the wonder, and here's something that we remember during this season, is that God is with us right now, and that because his Holy Spirit indwells us right now, that this little weird, broken, awkward, stumbling family is actually light in the darkness, not because of who we are, but because of the fact that Jesus has shown us grace and he has called us to proclaim the wonders of his love, that he has come into this world not for the people who are good, not for the people who have done it right, but for the people who have empty hands. For the people who are humble enough to say, I need what only you can give. I'll end this morning, I'll end this morning with the words from the poet Malcolm Geit. And he says it this way. He says, Christmas sets the center at the edge. And from this day our world is realigned. A tiny seed unfolding in the womb becomes the source from which we all unfold and flower into being. We are healed. The end begins. The tomb becomes a womb. From now, for now in him, all things are realigned. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we um, have a hard time wrapping our minds around the fact that Anyone would really want to be with us if they knew us, if they knew our thoughts, if they knew the, the things that, that fester in our hearts, and yet you know all of those things. And the coming of Jesus loudly proclaims uh, to us once again this morning that not only do you want to be with us, that you are with us. Father, for those of us this morning who don't know that, for those of us this morning who maybe think that they are too bad, or maybe those this morning who are too proud, Father, would you draw them to yourself so that they might find joy and rest in your humble son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.